Hello, and welcome to Into the Aether. It's still Loki Video Game Podcast. My name is Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Hilger. I'm very excited to be here today. There's, uh, there's really, I mean, you've already seen in the title, there's like one game that we really, really, really want to talk about this week. Uh, but before we even get into that, I just want to mention that I've been watching a lot of House. <laughs> House MD, Dr. Gregory House, who... You know, I mean, the Sherlock Holmes inspiration is like really on the tin, you know, like it's it's not that deep of a thing. But but Sherlock Holmes is known in media as being a person who, you know, his, his like pastime essentially is playing violin or playing various instruments. He's like, you know, a virtuoso at certain instruments. And that's kind of like how he gets his extra uh, mental energy out while he's like solving cases and stuff. And in house, it's the Nintendo DS. Did you know that? I only knew that based on your recent uh, Twitter post uh, of of House with the DS. I couldn't believe it. Like original DS. It's the the tank. Yeah, Yeah, it's the tank, which is somehow perfect. (laughs) Honestly, you saying a Sherlock Holmes inspired character playing the Nintendo DS is weirdly more thematically on point for this episode than I think you intended. It is. (laughs) It's true. So I guess I'll dive right into it. Yeah, let's just get into it. I mean, we there was other stuff to talk about, but whatever. I, I just want to talk about this video game, honestly. That's what I'm most excited about. Yeah, I recently on a Steam sale, now that I have a Steam deck, I can engage in Steam sales, which is exciting, thrilling yeah. even. Exhilarating? And exhilarating. I got a handful of games a few I'll talk about later, but uh, the one that I, I got kind of on a whim was a game published and developed by Square Enix called Paranorma Site. Yeah. Um, I saw ads for this game and like, I thought it looked cool. I think we've been getting sort of a revival of of sort of murder mystery visual novels in recent years. Mm-hmm. Um, we got the uh, the what were, what were they called for the Switch? The two that came out alongside each other. Oh, oh, the um, Famicom Detective Club or Famicom yeah. Detective Agency, something like that. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That came out I think a year ago, which were you know remakes of of Famicom. Yeah. Uh, the visual novels um and now i this still game haven't played out. the horror one that's the one i'm still waiting to check out which actually yeah. now that i've played paranormal site i feel like i gotta i gotta get into that one but uh the girl yeah. who stands behind it was called that's right uh and so paranormal site came out it looked pretty cool it was on sale for like 15 dollars, and i'm like this is perfect aether bait you yeah. know like, this is like a game that i think looks cool that i know nothing about that's 15 dollars. that's all i need yeah it launched on sale, which is such a weird thing. Yeah. And I think what kind of added to my intrigue was there was a thread on Twitter that kind of went viral that was about the director and writer of this game. Yeah. Um, his name is Takanari Ishiyama. And this thread is by uh, someone on Twitter named Bowl of Lentils. And they also have a YouTube channel. Uh, and I watched their video essay on sort of the history of visual novels. And honestly, like, I think for as much as you and I talk about games that are visual novels and use the term, I I really lacked a lot of the context and like history of this genre. And I'm not alone. I mean, I think this is a whole like era of video games that is kind of completely lost on the U S because we truly didn't get most of them. Like, but on the eight in the eighties on the Famicom, that was the beginning of, you know, Famicom detective club. But the, the, the game that kicked it all off was made by, None other than Yuji Horii. Watching uh, that video on the history of visual novels, I learned that Yuji Horii, in addition to basically inventing Dragon Quest and and JRPGs as we know them, also made visual novels with a game called Portopia. And I won't go too into detail. That that video essay I cited, I think, does a great job going into the full history 
Um, and this is stuff that I only recently learned, so I don't want to get the details wrong. But I would say the closest comparison would be it, it's very similar to the era of point and click adventure games that we had in the U.S., but the distinction between what was called, so, you know, we use the term visual novel now, but in the time, especially in Japan, these types of games were just called adventure games. So mm. there really wasn't that label on them. And what's fascinating about, you know, looking at game history in general, but especially in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, there's so much stuff changing so quickly yeah. and so much inspiration happening across the world, especially between the US and Japan, that like as much as we try to segment the history of games by like country and by genre, when you look at what's coming out and who's influencing who, it really is like a, a melding of ideas, which is really cool to sort of trace that path of inspiration. But what's fascinating is that I think overall the the form that adventure games took in the 80s in Japan was a there was a focus on people. So point and clicks in the West largely were about interacting with environments and like finding items to open a lock to continue right. seeing a setting. Whereas adventure games in Japan were largely about like doing that, but with dialogue. So like what do you have to say to this person to get them to confess to X, Y, or Z? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And learning about the history of the genre really makes Ace Attorney make more sense because I've always just sort of seen Ace Attorney as like, where did this game come from? It's such a cool idea. Yeah. It's like this, this bizarre concept that works so well. And like, when you look at the history, it's like, it's a very <laughs> established formula. The only, I mean, Ace Attorney, I think brings the color and, and the characters and, and the really great writing and the big spin on the format of Ace Attorney is that you're a lawyer and not a detective. But a lot of these games have the same sort of divide of like talking one-on-one -on -one with people, trying to get information and investigating a scene mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the early ones were all kind of detective murder mysteries i think as more and more games came out like there was sort of a veer towards what we would refer to as dating sims where it was more about like using that type of gamified dialogue but for relationships and actually the director of paranormal worked on tokimeki memorial which is sort of like <laughs> Really? the foundation yeah that's what i mean that twitter thread is wild it's like th this guy is a very <laughs> wild legacy yeah um so, so cool. reading all of that I, I think that's really interesting and that's sort of like a a shotgun blast of information but it was just really fascinating to me because i think i am really interested in visual novels and again that term now almost is akin to like saying alt rock where it's like what does that really mean like <laughs> And this goes back even further to what we talked about a lot on the Super Metroid Castlevania Symphony of the Night bonus, where like the term Metroidvania and how I think you and I feel that genre names should more just be like charting the path of influence rather than containing it. It's like it's a right. guide, not a box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, in terms of visual novels, like if you go on Steam and just, you know, organize by category and search visual novel, you kind of get things that are all over the place. Like they consider Persona 5 a visual novel, which, you know, I think you can make a case for it, but like right. it's a very different experience from like Kentucky at Zero, which I might also consider a visual novel. Yeah, very much. So all this to say, I think for me, my current interest, like we've seen a lot of games really, really take off with elements of these types of games. I think like Hades and Persona and Stardew Valley and even arguably Animal Crossing are all games that kind of have visual novel DNA with their focus on character and getting to know people and like specifically gamifying that. 
you know, it's not like in Final Fantasy, for example, there is that focus on character, but largely those are like narrated beats that are accompanying the main gameplay, which is like the combat usually. Mm -hmm. So I just, I think it's a really, really difficult thing to make dialogue into a game, you know, and in a way that's like not maybe dependent on dice rolls, but is just like the player's intuition and investment. Yeah. So I, I just think it's fascinating and I'm really... Yeah. And, and for the for the people out there who are listening to this and probably screaming at their at their podcast app of choice about like Danganronpa or Zero Escape. Of I, course. Just yeah. to be clear, like these games have existed and are and are in the public consciousness. Uh, but you and I have also tried playing those games for the various console retrospectives that we've done. And I think walked away from them not being as enamored as I think other people are in a lot of cases. And I'm really excited to talk about why Paranormasite in particular, which we'll get to, is working so well for me against those other ones. And I think a lot of it is exactly what you just touched on, which is like, if your game and the primary method of interaction with your game is purely based on narrative and dialogue, then you need to be an incredible writer. You know, like right. yeah. the, the writing being the forefront means the writing also needs to be the best thing about the game. Um, and the story needs to be like immediately gripping. And as much as I enjoy some of the setup and stuff from things like Zero Escape and Danganronpa in, in the in the experiences that I've had with them. I mean, the, the visual novels that have really clicked for me, the ones like To the Moon and Paranormasite and 13 Sentinels. These are all games that for me, at least are coming at them from really heady, really interesting concepts before you even get into the actual gameplay itself. Yeah, and, and to echo your point, like I'm not saying that, you know, we haven't gotten these types of games. I just think like specifically the nineties and two thousands, like we have two decades of of like the origin of this genre that is just not here. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> like a lot of stuff that just didn't get translated. Yeah. All the games on the Famicom, a lot of stuff that was specifically on mobile in the early two thousands. Um, we just mm -hmm. never got so like right i think that while it's great that you know and i haven't played danganronpa yet um, i played the first zero escape and i i really love the premise but again like you said i wasn't as pulled in um i'm definitely interested in checking out more of that series though but i digress i think like it's just put a lot of things into context for me because i think that like in doing this show i like sort of tracing the origin of stuff and seeing like what led to what and i just think there was this missing gap then now that I have context for things just make a lot more sense. Mm. <laughs> the, the thing too about a lot of visual novels is that like, because we didn't get those foundational games, I think sometimes we lack sort of like the game vocabulary to connect with them, you know, in the same way that like, if we didn't get Ocarina of Time, how would we be able to connect with certain <laughs> games after that? You know what I mean? Right, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I just think that there are some like really foundational moments in game history that we just didn't receive. Yeah. I do want to give a shout out, which I know it might seem silly, but I do want to give a shout out to Tim Rogers at Action Button for yes. making that Tokimeki Memorial review, because that that to me, I mean, speaking of uh, the things that we're always bringing up, like game preservation, that to me is not only game preservation, but is like contextual analysis of a genre that we don't have access to really and a game that will never be translated uh, i mean i guess it ha it it has been translated since that video came out thankfully but the the fact that he not only made that video explaining the the long history of the dating sim and relationship and visual novel genre in japan specifically but also released a full playthrough of it where he translated it live so you can like experience that game yourself in a way through him is kind of your your like ghostly visage on the other side of the screen 
screen, I guess. <laughs> um, I think that's really important. And then he did it again for Boku no Natsuyasumi, which also is great. But I, I, I really think that that video, the one that you're talking about in this Twitter thread, are all like great contextual kind of uh catch-up media pieces that you can yeah. check out which we'll put all of those in the show notes by the way yeah they're they're really worth watching and i think both of, of the tim rogers videos you mentioned like he also kind of gets into the sort of western perception of those games at the time yeah. which you know i won't get too into but i definitely think in games media in in those eras specifically there was kind of an othering of games we didn't understand yeah you know you know it's funny somebody asked us on twitter to talk about this and then i was like we probably it will probably won't come up on the show so I just like answered it in a tweet, but I feel like this goes hand in hand with the conversations about the term JRPG recently. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, we, we mentioned this a lot. Like I think a lot of game marketing in the U S in the eighties and nineties and early two thousands was all kind of hyper focused on like teenage boys. Yeah. And also in the very like kind of toxic way. And I think games that weren't specifically kind of violent or, or adhere to sort of like a certain lens of masculinity were considered like weird or for weirdos or perverted. And yeah, I mean, Tokimeki Memorial is a game that is about falling in love. Like it's really like, <laughs> it's a very innocent game. And, you know, I think like, obviously not all dating sims are like that, but I, I just think that it's, it's kind of unfortunate that like, when that game comes out all these game magazines are saying like look at this weird perverted game and then we celebrate a game where you like blow up a hospital and, and kill yeah. people on the sidewalk you know right. not just like gta has its place too i just think it, it kind of shows on a on a societal level what the u.s was comfortable with and that i think goes hand in hand with like our comfort with violence and media but our discomfort with like sexuality and intimacy yeah totally so these are <laughs> really big conversations that i feel almost as a disservice to dip my foot in and then go on to a game i like but <laughs> i do think these are all things i've been thinking about while while kind of investigating this genre and mm -hmm. doing my own detective work in some ways yeah um and this kind of goes into one of our main interests in the show which is game preservation so all this to say i do think like supporting paranormosite is like a good thing to do i think if you have <laughs> any interest in this game knowing nothing which i'll get to in a second why that's important <laughs> I, I think this game selling well can only open the doors to get more games like this which i think we absolutely should yeah yeah so it's the only time i'm gonna say give square enix more money actually that's not true i probably will say that a lot just by extension of my uh, love for final fantasy and octopath and a lot of the stuff they do anyway <laughs> paranormal site dude chrono cross Cro dude cro yeah never mind this whole show is a square ad sorry <laughs> steven square hilger steve <laughs> If it isn't Squarevin Higley, I'm going to kick your ass. You said you don't like games that adhere to a certain lens of masculinity. Fuck off. I like skateboarding, pizza, no homework, staying up late, eat shit. My dad gave me everything. Fuck off. I'm swimming in emeralds, baby. <laughs> Do you want to be your own boss, fucker? Go to... <laughs> Girls? Ew! I'm too busy with emeralds. <laughs> All right, we're we're. I do think up. that you are the square, <laughs> and I'm the enix of this relationship. <laughs> Don't you think? There is an excellent photo that maybe should be the art for this episode. Uh, there's an incredible photo of uh, Yuji Hori 
Sakaguchi and Toriyama. Oh, all crowded around the TV? In like the most 90s, like yeah. actually on yeah. Seinfeld era fashion, like the yeah. denim dress shirt. They're all around a TV that has Chrono Trigger on it. And I sent that to you and AJ and I'm like, tag yourself. And I've been thinking about who's who. And I I, I do think you're right. I think um, I think if, if we had to adhere to one side of it, I think I'm the square and you're the Unix. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Anyway. And AJ's our Toriyama. Absolutely. Absolutely. 1000%. Thank you, AJ. You're, you're my Goku. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Paranormal Sight. <laughs> it, this is the hardest it's been to bring up a game we both were excited to talk about. <laughs> I think it's almost daunting because, again, I think there's, there's a lot surrounding it. Anyway, so here's the thing about Paranormal Sight and why it's hard to bring up. I really think this is one of those games that's best to go in completely blind. The marketing of the game is is pretty simple. Uh, it it kind of shows off that it's a horror game, that it's like an investigative mystery game, uh, and it shows off the incredible art style of the look of the world and, and the characters. If all of that is working for you, I would say just get it and play it and don't listen to uh, the section of this episode where we talk about it. I don't think we're going to get into spoilers, but this is the kind of game where because they've gamified the dialogue and the story, getting into that stuff does actually spoil some of it in, in some capacity. Um, yeah. If you need a little bit of a push towards the game, I think you can listen and still have a great time. But I, I, I would say... I love this game, if that's not clear, and I really think more people should play it. I, I mean, it, it's getting a lot of positive buzz right now, but I think in terms of like the attention Square games get, I do think it needs more eyes on it, and I would love for this game to be like a huge success. So I would say just give it a chance if you're at all remotely interested. The only caveat to that is that it is a very heavy game, so maybe look up just like content warnings, like you know, make sure you're in a good place before you play it. I would say yeah. there is violence, but I think the the heaviest and most disturbing things in the game are not shown, which I think is also the sign of good horror. Like yes. the, the most wild and, and horrible stuff is is written or implied, but mm -hmm. not shown. So yeah. um, if you look at the list and you're like, I'm not going to touch this game, most of it is not shown. Yeah. Weirdly enough, actually, I can't I can't believe I'm making this connection, but weirdly enough, <laughs> it reminds me a lot of my experience watching House so far. Where <laughs> we can't escape. My, Zero my escape. Th my thing about House, so I, I I didn't put this on on my own volition. My partner, Persia, is a big fan of House and wanted to rewatch the series. And I was like, cool, I'll sit down and like watch a couple episodes. And my feeling about medical dramas like that is very similar to my feeling about the rise of true crime podcasts is like almost the uh, entertainmentification of people's misery and trauma, you know, like watching all of these people go and have these like really horrible things happen to them medically in house. I was like really uncomfortable watching it for a while in the same way that I'm really uncomfortable listening to a lot of true crime podcasts because I'm like, I don't want to just listen to how this person got brutally murdered, you know, like it just over yeah. and over and over again, like it just is horrible to listen to. The thing about house that really started working for me in a way that a true crime podcast in most cases never will, if I were to guess, is that what I started to realize about House was that the, the medical stuff is almost a background to the actual drama of what's happening in the hospital in the same way that the horrible things happening in Paranormal Site are almost a background to like the mechanic fun and the and the character 
work that is happening. You know, yeah. like I, I'm, I'm always more interested in house in watching his relationships with the other people that work in the hospital and like the, the internal politics of everything that's going on there. In the same way that with Paranormal Sight, it's like the focus isn't on the gruesome way this person died. The focus is on what you do after that. Yeah. And that that's kind of the most surprising thing to me, because I think in a lot of horror games, I think sometimes the characters can be vessels for the experience. Like, yeah, I actually think Alien Isolation is a game where, like, I almost wish there were no cutscenes or other characters because, like, that game is so focused on the atmosphere and on, like, making the player feel alone and, you know, yeah. paranoid of this alien or, you know, other hostile creatures kind of stalking you. And it's incredible. But, like, whenever mm -hmm. there's a scene, I'm like, this is taking me out of it. You got to play Far Cry 2. I'm just going to throw that out there and then we'll keep going. <laughs> I, I haven't played any of the Far Cry games. Uh, and you I just feel need like to play two. I, I remember three being liked at the time, but that was also 2013. And I feel like that was the year of bad taste somehow. Like yeah. Anything that was big in 2013 is like, why? The problem with Far Cry is that every single game since three has been three done again, but in a new location, almost yeah. like a season of Survivor. And two is like a really holistic and specific idea done really, really well. And it's backwards compatible on the Xbox. Fine, I'll get it on my Series S and I'll bring it up on the show. <laughs> the thing I'm most pleasantly surprised by in Paranormal Sight, and I didn't expect this to not be the case, but I think the cast and the dialogue is really good. Yeah. Um, like yeah. I think that this group of characters could work in a comedy, could work in like a, a drama. Like I, I really think like the game does a great job making you care about them and the characters that you don't care about, you're interested in. So like mm -hmm. everyone is working as intended. And it's also just like, I think having a horror game and this, <laughs> this sounds kind of silly, but it doesn't happen super often for me. Like having a horror game where I'm really emotionally invested in the characters, I think really does a lot to make me immersed in it. Like I, I yeah. like when something scary happens, it's not just like scaring me. I'm worried about the person in the game. Yeah. And that's the case with the best horror fiction in general. I mean, I, yeah, I, I'm, I wouldn't consider myself like a horror buff by any stretch, but I've watched like the hits and I feel like every year there's like the one big one. And then I will go see that in theaters and have a good time usually. And the ones that I always resonate with are the ones that focus so much on the interpersonal drama of the people before, before the horror shit happens, you know, yeah. like you, you think of move. I mean, the classics like The Shining <laughs> and stuff, but even one of my favorites is Sinister. I don't know if you saw Sinister with Ethan Hawke, but like he's a writer who's like down on his leg. He had kind of like a Stephen King thing going and then, you know, kind of whittled away at, at, at his creative agency and started to feel like he couldn't really write anymore. And because he stopped like bringing in money and because he was so bummed about his lack of creativity, like his family started falling apart and you just have like a whole first act of just like Ethan hawk's sad life before actually anything scary happens and that is one of my favorite horror movies in recent memory um, yeah for that exact reason and i think paranormal site like nails a lot of that as well yeah i don't know exactly who this quote is attributed to and i feel like a lot of people have said a version of this but i do think like comedy and horror in one are kind of weirdly intrinsically linked in some ways yeah. but i think yeah. the sign of a good comedy and a good horror is if you took that element out of it and it still works you mm -hmm. know, if, if they both work as a drama or as, as a piece without the horror or without the comedy, um, I think that's a sign of like just a good story, you yeah. know? 
Yeah. Um, and Paranormal Side, I think the characters and the writing are really good. It reminds me a lot of Ace Attorney, which maybe is a silly comparison given the history we now know of the genre. Like, obviously, they're going to be similar, but e- even still, just the way the di- like the rhythm of the dialogue and the game yeah. sense of humor, like the the use of sound effects to kind of like accentuate a punchline. Because the game, the game is not without its moments of humor. I wouldn't say it's mm-hmm. like funny but i do think the game manages to balance a lot of tones at once like the the very very beginning you are talking with uh this character named the storyteller who has big happy mask salesman energy and like there's almost like a willy wonka kind of tone to the game where like there's all you know the whole game you're actually watching it through the lens of like an 80s new color tv Mm -hmm. so there's like kind of a grained everything um and I, i really love how old like 80s media has become the new victorian architecture for horror i feel like that's like <laughs> like there's always like a past yeah. era of something that is like glued to ghosts and demons yeah and for some reason now it's 80s uh it's also kind of citing eras of horror as well but anyway without getting too into what the game is i guess just to give you a little bit more about how it plays the game is sort of divided into sequences where it is mostly dialogue um or mostly kind of like either like letting a scene play out or talking to people about something kind of like playing out everything they have to say about certain subjects and then there's sort of an ace attorney investigation phase the decision this game makes that i think wildly pays off in in like a devilish way is when you're investigating it's not just it's in first person but you're not just seeing the scene in a square canvas it is a rotating perspective Mm -hmm. so you have to look all around in like a fixed 360 view and you just know the game is like pumped to put something behind you and they actually that is where the game is sometimes at its funniest they often just fuck with you with that like the game is really (laughs) not there there are a couple jump scares but they're not really interested in that being the main vessel for the horror so like a lot of times at the minute they give you that control they just sort of throw someone behind you and there's always like kind of an excitement to that it reminds me like in great ace attorney chronicles often you'll be investigating a scene and then if you like veer right herlock sholmes is just there without you realizing it right and this game does that a lot where like every now and then you'll be looking around and then you'll be like wait a minute there's a person standing there like what's their deal every now and then i think the game falls into the classic pitfall of this genre where you have to like find the one thing you miss to progress but Mm -hmm. overall the pacing of it and the ability to progress is pretty streamlined I i think for someone at least for me who has like kind of like a basic understanding of these types of games I didn't have too much issue. I also, for the record, finished it last night. The first time I played this game, I stayed up until two in the morning and then had a nightmare that I ate my own heart. And then uh, (laughs) last night, I finished it at like three in the morning, truly. So it's really hard to put down. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. The uh, (laughs) my total play time was 15 hours. So I I do think while I did kind of inhale this game, it is a game that you can probably finish in a week or two pretty Mm -hmm. easily. It is divided into chapters, and I don't want to say more than that. I I think I'll save more of of the specific structure of this game for the like. Okay, if you need a little bit more info section, yeah, I I don't think it's a spoiler to say at least like the perspective of this game changes and you play as multiple characters and you can choose which character you want to play as. I think, I think that's enough to say. Yeah, that's it. That's in the marketing of the game. So yeah, it's sort of, uh, sort of 13 Sentinels E, Uh, although I think it's not unique to 13 Sentinels to have multiple characters perspectives, but 
similar to 13 sentinels you can like mainline one character's story but then they might be gated until you progress to another character's story to a certain degree what i enjoy about the multiple perspectives is that they all take a slightly different tone with each other like i think um there's one where you play as two detectives and that part of the game feels I would say the game's two kind of vibes are like straight up horror and thriller mystery. And I think the game weirdly opens with a lot of the horror. And then without saying too much, the remainder of it kind of stays closer to like a seven-esque mystery thriller, Mm -hmm. which I think works for the length. I think horror is a hard genre to sustain over a long time. Like I think even Resident Evil games, like often the first hour or two is the best part. And then they kind of either jump the shark or fizzle out so then the game was was wise to kind of like open with the most horror and then the rest is like okay now that you care about what's happening here's how it plays out yeah it kind of uh, without saying too much uh until we get into that section i i think it it does a really interesting thing that's almost like the reverse of jaws like jaws is famous for not showing <laughs> the shark until the very end of the movie really because they want the not knowing like how big this thing is what it looks like to be part of the horror right you just you just see the actions of the shark but not the shark itself and paranormal site almost does the inverse where it's like we're gonna front load you with all of this exposition and all of our like big ideas and all of the horror that all of us big ideas can create and then we're going to step back and allow you to experience the story that exists within that world that we've set up for you um it's really smart it's really interesting it is i I will say i do wonder if like someone is more drawn to the horror if they will be let down with that kind of shift like if they Mm -hmm. wanted it to be like i I don't think so but there definitely is like a a change in vibe it's not it's not dramatic but it is like the game takes kind of a different approach and i enjoyed it because what that meant is that there was way more time to focus on the characters and the dialogue and i got a much stronger sense of like like i feel like by the end i knew certain characters way better than i did when they were just like running from ghosts yeah i was gonna say i I feel like it also depends on the order in which you do the characters right because of of the ones that are there some of them are more horror oriented than others uh and and you know if you if you dole out the horror ones then you can kind of craft a better experience for yourself if that's what you're more into absolutely yeah i think it's nice like i would say the the other protagonists like one you know the two detectives kind of feels like seven yeah and weirdly i think has the most levity because like the banter between the two detectives is really fun that they're really funny characters right and then one is more uh one is like a a mother who has hired a private investigator um and that feels like very noir that feels like very classic mm-hmm. like you know the uh and the the character who is the private investigator is just just incredible yeah like they just like what if one character was from jojo's that's basically <laughs> right his energy yeah and then there's a character who's a high school girl and i think her story is the most kind of in the weeds with like the supernatural stuff yes which i re- i really loved her um yeah i think by the end she was my favorite yeah she's mine too at the moment yeah so it's just like i mean i i love a good ensemble i love multiple perspectives this game is like very much my shit in a lot of ways and there's even more to it than that but that i think is a good pitch without without getting too in the details and if you want to learn more we'll have that in the next section but was there anything else you wanted to share about the game before we move on not not that i could think of. i i guess it's probably worth mentioning that this is available on most platforms um yeah including mobile which i think is interesting that's not where i or you are playing it but this developer and this writer is known specifically for making mobile visual novels um 
so that might be a good place to play it. And I could I could see a world in which, you know, just using the touchscreen on your phone to kind of look around an environment and tap on things is actually probably a really great method of interaction. Yeah. You're playing I mean, on the Steam Deck. I'm playing it on yeah. the Switch. And I will say personally, I'm finding the Switch version of it to be good, not great, because the the way it works is the left analog stick is literally like a mouse cursor that you have to like drag around the screen and then click on things with the A button. And the right stick is to look around the environment and needing to do both of those simultaneously just feels not great. Like it, it feels a little bit unwieldy. Um, so just a heads up if you're if you're going to get it on Switch uh, that that's going to maybe be a little bit of a, a pushback for you. It's similar on Steam Deck, though. What's great about both the Switch and the Steam Deck is they also have touch controls. So if mm-hmm. you want to, you actually can do that. Yeah. Um, I, but I, I found it to be, uh, for whatever reason, at least on the Steam Deck, I found the virtual cursor to be pretty good. And also, like, the game, I, I'm just obsessed with, like, all, like, the character design and the the menus and just the look of the game. Yeah. The sound. And, like, you have a, a sort of Silent Hilly menu where, like, every person of note is updated as you meet them. And the game does a great job, like, showing you, like, whenever you learn something new, they're like, your files have been updated. Initially, it's like you have all this stuff about, like, the seven mysteries Hanjo, which is the subtitle of the game. And they're all like uh, Edo period tales of like some unfortunate disaster. And they become kind of legendary ghost stories. That <laughs> or just weirdly... nothing, which is really funny, too. Right. Like, so that they're all just like tall tales that were told around the Edo period. And some of them are like horrible murder mysteries. And some of them are like, yeah, this tree just never dropped any of its leaves. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, shit, it's a pine tree. It's not supposed to. <laughs> right. So and all of those mysteries kind of tie to the various settings of the games and also the characters who who are there which is cool but Mm -hmm. eventually like all that information feels like evidence in an ace attorney game like eventually going through all the character biographies and all your inventory and and everything you know feels like a zelda game where you're looking at your your items you can use and that is done so well and this is i i've mentioned this before but there are a few games that really pull off having a codex that i want to read Mm -hmm. like even mass effect which i adore i think that game comes pretty close but like i would rather play the game than sit there and and hear all about elcor you know i would much rather have like a printed book of the codex that i could read at my leisure instead of needing to sit in front of my tv and read it right even though like it is great when you actually get into it like it doesn't it doesn't exist harmoniously within the game the same way it does weirdly in hades which like I ate up and they kind of mm-hmm. treat it as a reward because the more you unlock your character relationships or the more you visit a place, you'll get more from it. And it's actually written from the point of view of Achilles. So to see his voice in there, I think adds another layer to it. Mm-hmm. Honestly, too, uh, left turn, but Witcher 3, I think, has an incredible like oh, uh, codex because it's also written from the point of view of a character the bard dandelion who's also the narrator of the game mm. and that codex is updated as you play so depending on what choices you make and how stories play out a character's story will be like kind of updated in real time and oh, it's cool. really beautifully written i love if you read the entry for dandelion himself it opens with something like i would place any wager dear reader that you a person of refined taste and experience already know who i am uh, <laughs> And then it's like, but just for, you know, convenience sake, I'll, I'll go into my history here. That's great. All that to say, obviously, in this game, not only is it really fun to read and gives you way more, way more information than maybe you even want about some characters, it also serves a gameplay function. Mm-hmm. The game will often ask the player directly, like, 
what is this? Like, what is the relationship between X and Y? Yeah. And I think I find those moments thrilling to kind of go in because this kind of gets away from the issue that you've brought up with Ace Attorney, where sometimes you've already made the connection, mm-hmm. but you have to wait for Phoenix or whoever to make the connection. Yeah. Um, whereas in this game, like them just being like, okay, you've had time to think about this. Like, what is the answer? And being given the opportunity to review all your information, it really is thrilling. Yeah. It's so much fun. Yeah. Check out Paranormal Site. As we mentioned, it's probably still on sale. It might not be by the time this episode comes out, but I think like that means it's probably $20 instead of $15. Yeah, it's 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 $20 usually. Yeah. Here's a, here's a question for you. Do you want to just move on to more in-depth talk about Paranormal Site, or should we give the listeners something different as a little break? Let's give you a little break. I think even Paranormal Site knows when to add some levity. Okay. So why don't we do a little amuse-bouche, as you would say, and then we'll get back. If you want like more information, and again, I, I think this is the perfect amount of information to go into the game with, but if you even either don't really plan on playing it but want to hear more about it or you do want more information but not outwardly spoiled or directly spoiled yeah then we'll have that uh at the end of the episode all right so coming up next then will be a bunch of other games that we've been playing uh, and then we'll come back and and go more in depth in paranormal site yeah and i think we'll also i i might go into my backlog a little bit just to you know show what's on the horizon cool all right well let's take a break when we come back even more video games can you believe it they're still making them <laughs> bye-bye <laughs> Suddenly, me staying up until three caught up with me in that moment. <laughs> the games, they're still making him right back to sleep. All right. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Hello, we're back. Welcome to uh, a buffet of video games. Uh, just to, to break up these paranormal site segments. I do want to say <laughs> two things before we even get into the games that we're talking about. Number one, uh, people continue to uh, say very nice things about the 3DS episode. So I wanted to say thank yeah. you to everybody who has been back in the Patreon, checking that out, uh, talking about how, how good it is. Uh, it's very nice because we, we were really proud of it. So it's cool to it's cool to see that people really connected with it. Um, we got a nice yeah. shout out in Polygon, which is cool. Alongside, I will say, alongside um, Insert Credit, who also did their 3DS episode uh which i listened to yesterday while i was getting ready for we we threw a party for the persian new year nevruz last night and uh while i was like cleaning and getting ready for that i listened to their 3ds episode also a great episode they also love attack of the friday monsters which really uh, endeared me to that show but uh definitely check that episode out as well i also want to give a shout out to the completionist gerard who on you did you see this yesterday what he no. did. So yesterday on, on YouTube, he released a video yeah, at the time of this recording. He released a video on YouTube uh, that was essentially he bought every single game that was available for the 3DS and the Wii U to donate them to the Video Game History Foundation. Um, That's awesome. Which was so cool. So I, I didn't know this. Uh, there was a, a report recently in Ars Technica by uh, Kyle Orland where he talked to members of the Video Game History Foundation just about like the impending closure of the 3DS and stuff uh, of the eShop. And they were like, you know, it's it's already frustrating enough needing to collect all of these games and 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 try and preserve them. And, you know, it's like a tough job, but it's even worse for digital games because specifically and I, I had no knowledge of this, but the way the laws work, which is so unhinged, is essentially all these companies, Nintendo, Sony, Microsoft, uh, Ubisoft, everyone under the sun has like helped fund the ESA as a lobbying group, the ESA, like the same ESA that puts on E3 as a lobbying group to enact all of these laws that make video game preservation, like basically impossible and or illegal in a lot of cases. So 
what we're left with is the Video Game History Foundation, who is like trying to literally preserve every video game. The only way they're allowed to do it is if they have physical copies of games. They're not legally, because of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, allowed to digitally copy games and back them up like digitally. You have to have a physical copy of stuff. And... If you're like a scholar or a researcher, like if you are teaching a game design class in a college or something and you want to like borrow one of those games from the Video Game History Foundation, you're not allowed to distribute uh, archived material legally. You have to physically go to the location of the Video Game History Foundation to access archived material, uh, which obviously is like untenable and the complete opposite of how it works for every other media under the sun. Right. Like apply this to books and yeah. <laughs> or anything. Like, right. You know. So what you're left with essentially is like, okay, the Video Game History Foundation needs physical copies of everything and they're not allowed to loan them out digitally. And this article and Ars Technica was specifically talking about like that means that for anything that's digital only there's actually literally no legal way to back up that material like not only is it gone for people who might want to play it just like regular people out in the world but the actual people doing the work of archiving this history are also not legally allowed to do it which is where Gerard at the completionist came up with this kind of workaround which is like what if I bought all of this stuff downloaded it all to a 3ds and then donated the physical 3ds it's like a little loophole which is brilliant so just shout out to Gerard a real one for that's doing amazing that. yeah I'm also like even though that's very distressing to hear I'm really glad to see that like like there could have been a likely reality where this happened and no one really talked about it. I, I'm very happy to see that like a lot of people care about this stuff a lot. Like pretty much every yeah. major publication was like, it's happening soon. Here's how to get this stuff. And people, you know, also being like, here's how to hack a 3DS. Fuck it. If they're not going to do it, do it this way. Yeah, you know, like right. I'm glad that people think this stuff is important more than the companies do. Yes. You know, and I, I'm glad that there are people who are finding ways to preserve art. Basically, yeah. that's that's really what we're asking for. I'm just I'm wondering when that's going to like when that's going to break, you know, for for these corporations. Like I'm wondering at what point the public sentiment about this will reach a breaking point that will force the companies to change their minds about it, yeah. even just in terms of like what what the Video Game History Foundation is trying to do, like even just allowing them to do their jobs in an easier manner is is a thing that I care about you know yeah i mean to their credit i do think microsoft of, of the big three there is really the only big company that has tried to preserve their stuff like uh, i mean it's not it's still not perfect and it's still tied to having game pass or like buying it on the e-store yeah but like i do appreciate it that at one of their events they were like we have now put for sale every game from the 360 and xbox that we legally can right that's something and i think nintendo you know has their subscription thing but again, it's like in all of these cases, game preservation is treated as like, you know, DVD sales or like breaking case of emergency. You know, yeah. it's not prioritized and it's not it's not really deemed as important if it doesn't make money, mm -hmm. which is I mean, that's also the shitty way to go about it. Yeah. The foil of capitalism is like if, if something doesn't make money, it's inherently worthless and that destroys a lot of industries. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, well, I, I think I, I'm optimistic long term. I just think that law needs to get the fuck out of here. Like, they need to, <laughs> the law needs to go away. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. Uh, that's, that's very so. much how I feel about it. And, uh, yeah. At, at the risk of uh, never being invited to E3, which I didn't really want to go to in the first place, I mean, like, fully fuck the ESA for pulling that <laughs> shit also. Uh, having like a big lobbying group that's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. People can never access the history of this. Like, it, it's, it's wild for companies 
to make video games claim their art and then not allow that art to be backed up in any legal capacity you know right it's that they want to keep that as a carrot on a stick if they need to you know that's mm-hmm. really all it is it's like you know i do wonder if maybe the only thing that can really like for some someone like sony or nintendo it's like the minute that like something stops working for them or or starts working for them is really how that change will happen but yeah I, I do think i mean there there is power in public sentiment i think the reason we've largely avoided nfts you know taking over games is just the overwhelming negative response yeah people are just saying like absolutely like if, if we can get ubisoft to say no to nfts we can do anything yeah. that was amazing you know like i think not that that crisis is over but i just think that like yeah i mean did you see the square enix trailer this week no i haven't square enix is going all in on their big nft video game i'm just saying have you learned <laughs> nothing from ff7 talk about honoring your own history oh my if god there was a thread going around on twitter recently that was like can you show me the last thing you did before the pandemic happened like go back in your camera roll see what the last thing you took a picture was steven the actual last thing that i did before the pandemic was i bought you two butterfingers so you could get that final fantasy 7 <laughs> theme on your ps4 that was the literal last thing i did on my way home when uh my boss was like yeah we're gonna work from home tomorrow I, I envision that event as the beginning of getting cursed in Paranormal Sack. I did that and it was like, yeah. kill, kill, yes. fill the Butterfingers with soul dredges. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, that, that's, now I know my limit. Like now I know like the worst version of me as a fan of FF7, you can get me to buy Butterfingers, mm-hmm. but you can never get me to get into NFTs yeah. ever. Yeah. No fucking thanks. <laughs> More like... <laughs> like if there's ever a like a, a avalanche nft like completely missing the point you know barrett yeah never would be into crypto tifa would rather die yeah Aerith doesn't have a computer and cloud also doesn't have a computer so yeah. like none of them none of them would maybe bigs and wedge yeah I, oh yeah probably <laughs> definitely reno reno is absolutely into crypto <laughs> what have you been playing steven <laughs> so uh steam sale i got a bunch of stuff oh yeah um, i got trails from zero trails is like my i feel like ff14 and trails are my big yeah white whales like i really want to like know what people love about them i'm like i don't know like seven or eight hours into trails in the sky the first one mm-hmm. and i really love it so far and i i definitely like love what's going on with the battle system and the story but i'm just a little bit daunted that like there's so much to do like there are trilogies within the overall series for whatever reason i'm most intrigued by trails from zero and trails to azure azure yeah azure that's a duology kind of in the middle of there's the trails in the sky trilogy there's the i think called crossbell duology mm-hmm. which is trails from zero and trails to azure yeah um and then there's the trails of cold steel games and then there is the most recent one that hasn't been released here yet right um this is also a series that we tend to get years later like i think actually trails from azure just came out on steam like a couple of days ago. Yes. So that's exciting. And I don't, I don't really know why. I think it's because what you've shared with me, I think like those two games seem to get to the heart of the matter faster than Trails in the Sky does. But I also know that like this game is meant to be experienced over time. And I want to get that like foundation, mm-hmm. 
with trails in the sky so that that's definitely like a one day thing i i think uh I, I know that uh, sometimes we like start a game and then it kind of goes away for a bit and people are left wondering like, if we'll ever return to it. Trails is definitely like something I really want to get back into. So, yeah, you and I were actually just talking right before the show about the idea of Trails in the Sky versus Trails from Zero. And I think my plan is to just maybe bail on from the sky and just keep playing Zero because I loved what I played of Zero and Sky. I'm having a harder time getting into, even though I like it a lot. I think I think it's got some interesting stuff going on. Zero is just fascinating like in terms of its world building from go. Uh, and I know a lot of the work of that world building was set up in, in the sky, but I feel like I'm getting what I need uh, in the yeah. game of zero already. I'm far enough into sky that I, I might want to keep going, but I'll, I'll, I'll follow my heart. I asked, we have a pretty active trails forum in the discord. And I asked in there, like, would I be doing myself like a huge disservice if I started with zero? What I was told is basically like, there's a lot of like, there are a lot of things that may like, spoil the original trilogy in that game but like basically do whatever you're most interested in it kind of seems like you can get away with starting at the beginning of one of the different trilogies mm -hmm. so like as long as you start with like trails of cold steel or from zero or in the sky that might be wildly off base yeah um, i'm open to hearing what trails fans think but it, it seems to like at least in the discord a lot of people share that they started elsewhere and then went back so yeah i do wonder if because i think trails in the sky is so low stakes right now that I'm, I'm not even fully sure what the series is about yeah that was that's been my issue with that game up until this point it, this weirdly reminds me of like kiwami versus zero where it's like yakuza kiwami does begin with kiryu as kiryu you yes, know right anyway so that's one game i got i also got black mesa which is oh shit really i believe a fan made remake yes. of the first half-life right which which then became an official release yeah um i've watched a bit of the no clip documentary about the making of this game and half-life is another white whale uh it's a huge blind spot for me i think you and i both like came to the show with like a pretty good foundation of games but like obviously there are everyone has the big series they missed you know yeah and half-life is that for me i, I played the very beginning of two years ago mm. and i i love a lot of you know valve stuff like i love left for dead and team fortress 2 yeah um so like i i'm sure i will love half-life and that's something that i think we may do a bonus about one day yeah that was that was always the idea when we got the steam deck was eventually to do a half-life bonus because i i have played two none of the extra chapters i never played any of the stuff that came after that yeah. but um i've never played the first one and i feel like if black mesa works on the steam deck then i'll probably pick that up too yeah black mesa is gold on proton db gold uh, so it looks like there's some tweaking to do but it works seemingly so yeah so i got that and um i also got monster train which yeah. i had played before I, I i played it on game pass we had an episode a couple years ago where i believe we talked about monster train dicey dungeons and another kind of deck builder game. I forgot which one. Mm. But Monster Train, I remember really liking, but kind of got lost in the shuffle and I, I didn't really go back to it. And I also think like it is a game that I think definitely works better handhelds than like as a sit down on the on the TV experience. Yes. So I, I got on this on the Steam Deck and I like immediately thought like why did i ever stop playing this this is incredible yeah man i i, I think it's gonna be like my go-to like i just sort of need to like hang out for an hour or whatever <laughs> like that that type of game has been marvel snap for me for the last like year or so mm -hmm. but i think i might pivot to monster train just because it's so fun and it's so 
strange and it has the kind of slay the spirey path uh, choice. And I love like it also kind of has a little bit more. We mentioned this when we first started at Marvel Snap, sort of like the subtle differences between like a Slay the Spire and a Magic the Gathering. And Monster Train kind of feels like the perfect middle ground. Like there is that like you're choosing like two parts of a deck kind of akin to Magic. Yeah. So for context, like you play as as the minions of hell trying to prevent the angels of heaven from attacking hell and you fight in a train that has three distinct areas and like it's sort of like there are little turn-based combat things happening on each layer of the train it's kind of hard to explain it's it's fairly intuitive once you're told how it works but basically you spend cards to place monsters or cast spells on different sections of the train and then combat kind of plays out and once an area has been clear like if you lose all your minions on one level of the train the angels or the you know army from heaven will freeze that part of the train and then you can't put anyone there anymore right and then their goal is to attack your pyre which like uh you know has a certain amount of health and once that goes down then you lose but like I, I love the fact that like there are a bunch of different armies of hell. And when you start a run, you choose like who are the two that I want to do. So you start off with like demons and sort of like more kind of fey wilds, like natural beings. And I remember like unlocking more creatures that kind of had more interesting abilities later on. So I'm excited to just sort of get back into it and kind of get a stronger idea of like what a run can look like. Yeah, that's on my uh, my ongoing list of games that I am not bringing to the show. I'm building this like little <laughs> list of games that I'm always playing that one day I'll just do a segment about. I'll just run through all of them because they're not like big enough to do a whole segment about because it's like a lot of games that we've talked about before. Uh, but Monster Train is a game that I always have on my phone and I'm playing a lot. I, it's I so love, good. I love it. It's really good on mobile uh, if you haven't picked yeah. it up there as well. Anything else? Did you get anything else from the Steam sale? Uh, I haven't even no, looked at it yet. I know the Steam Deck is on sale, which is cool. <laughs> There's a lot of good stuff on sale. It might be over by the time this episode's out is that is that possible yeah so it looks like it ends march 23rd so i think it might end like the day this episode comes out oh yeah <laughs> but boy boy what a good sale <laughs> i yeah so i got black mesa paranormal site um monster train and trails from zero nice uh and i i had to hold myself back from getting more because there are a lot of good deals um there's stuff that like i already have that i kind of want in steam deck like elden ring i'm always waiting to like oh, yeah. go more deeply on sale to have that but uh i i felt good about the games i picked up and paranormal site obviously has occupied most of my time uh, right so okay i'm gonna check out the steam sale after we're done recording today uh you definitely should i'll say on, on on my side some stuff that i'm playing uh real quick uh one of the things that i've been checking out is a game that i was really excited about when i saw it announced i don't even remember when it was announced it might have just been like a devolver event at like an e3 jeff Keighley game fest kind of thing but there was a game that they announced called phantom abyss which is a first person platforming roguelike uh that also has kind of like a fall guys energy to it so the idea is that you and uh, i guess Guess about a hundred other people are all spawned into what is essentially like a booby-trapped Indiana Jones temple, and you need to make your way to the end of the temple and like retrieve a golden artifact and then get out with it. Um, and all of the other people that you're with are all ghosts, so it's not like the first one to get to the artifact wins or anything. It's like everyone can get the artifact if they can make it to the end of the temple. But again, it's like completely booby-trapped and absolutely wild. And I I was really interested to see how this game would feel uh, because I think just doing first-person platform like that i mean it feels a lot like uh mirror's edge i think yeah. which is like the one game that's done it well this game kind of like yeah and uh, neon white i would say oh yeah neon but white also it's a little bit different but yeah but in, in terms of in terms of 
what it's taking from Mirror's Edge, which I think is really smart. A lot of it is like if you're jumping from a high vantage point down onto a platform below, you need to do like a little tuck and roll to make sure you don't take any damage, things like that they're incorporating, uh, which is cool. And one of the biggest, most interesting things is they give you like the Indiana Jones whip and you use it to like grapple onto things. So a lot of times you'll be like sprinting through an area and you need to like grapple onto a hook or something in the air or onto a platform that's in front of you and pull yourself up onto it and avoid, you know, getting sliced in half by a by a big blade or something. Right now it's in it's in early access. I forget what they call it on, on Xbox, but it's uh, in early access. If you have Game Pass, you can you can check it out. I think it's game previews like Game Pass previews, but you check it out. It's it's honestly really fun. Um, it's really lightweight uh, you can hop in and hop out and do like one run and have a really good time um i've been playing it on and off it, it's very cool and uh, i'm excited for the full thing to come out and just kind of like see what the more holistic view of it is uh because the the vibe is that there's like a god in this temple who has cursed everyone to essentially like be immortal and you need to continue to run through this temple over and over and over again and keep continuing to get these idols to i guess free the evil dark god um there seems to be like an actual story and then there's also like the daily run or the like more fall guy approach to it which i think is a really fun um a fun dichotomy between those two where it's like they are building a holistic single player experience that also does include other people so there are phantoms of other people like also running through the single player experience with you um and you can use the the big thing about it is you can see where they're dying and what they're dying on which you know you could use to inform your own run as you're making your way through is like why did all these people die here and then you realize like oh they stepped on this thing on the floor that you know raised up some spikes from the ground or something which is i think a really cool way of doing a single player experience is having this kind of asynchronous multiplayer element to it oh yeah i mean very much like uh from soft stuff where you can see the yeah. sort of specters of people who died and exactly. it's always nerve-wracking like <laughs> just like a door it's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like well here we go yeah this is gonna go well but that's called Phantom Abyss being published by Devolver. It's pretty cool. It's, it's an interesting idea. Um, the other one that yeah. I that I started dipping into that I probably will talk about more next week, and I think you might also, we'll see, uh, is Valheim, uh, which is a game oh, yeah. that you and I totally missed because it wasn't available on on anything that we owned. Uh, we didn't have a Steam Deck when when this thing came out. But I, I was like, oh, do I pick this up on Steam Deck now that I have one? Because I'm really interested in what's going on with Valheim. And as soon as I was like asking that question of myself, whenever that was, uh, they announced the console version was coming. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll just play it on my Xbox eventually when that happens. And little did I know, again, just like Phantom Abyss, you can just get the early access game preview version of Valheim on your Xbox right now if you have Game Pass. I'm only like 45 minutes to an hour into that thing. Um, I've had like the busiest week I've had in a really long time. So I didn't really play a lot of video games this week. Um, But I did really enjoy that first hour of Valheim. I, I don't, I'll be honest. Uh, I saw that game going around. I saw a lot of praise for it. I saw a lot of people really excited about it. It obviously died off because it was kind of like a game of the moment. Um, yeah. But I never in any of in any of that conversation really picked up on or at least like stored in my own memory banks what it's actually about and what it is. And I've been very interested and surprised to find out what that game is. And I think that you uh, will enjoy it a lot, especially I think we're thinking about maybe playing it multiplayer a little bit with AJ as well. Uh, and that'll be really fun. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'll i probably get on Xbox too then because that was also one that was on sale that I was like, do I get this on Steam? I had the same exact thought. Yeah. So I'm, I I mean, AJ said it was basically uh, Skyrim Minecraft, which... Yeah. Sounds great. So yes. yeah, it's up. uh it's really, really funny. I took I took I took a screenshot that I can't wait to be the episode art for next week. Uh, <laughs> I'm really excited about it. So anyway, that's Valheim. The last thing I'll bring up real quick, uh, and and just kind of like touch on it and then we can move on is that I'm also replaying the first Bioshock. 
and I'll talk more uh, about that at a later date. Can you can you summon bees in that game? I don't know. Can you? Is that one of the plasmids? In yeah, that game? it is. I'm just being weird. I remember that was like <laughs> 17 year old talking about, you know, game marketing of the early 2000s. 17 year old Steven was like, dude, this game lets you shoot bees out of your hand. <laughs> I was like actually excited about yeah. that. Because there, there was like a split second of the trailer where it was like, and I was like, yeah. oh, I've never done that and even thought to do that. Wow. This game rolls. Yeah. And then, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, you know what? Because I remember Infinite also has the the murder of crows, which yeah, is. Yeah, that uh, was my favorite pa- power in that th- game. Their version of that. But I think, um, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, at Arcadia, which if you've played Bioshock before, you know, is like maybe the first third to close to a half of that game. Uh, and man, Bioshock, uh, Bioshock holds up. Oh, you know what? Speaking of Bioshock, the other game that's like forever on my backlog and wish list that I should just get because it's like $12 is System Shock 2. I've mm. never played System Shock 2 and I feel like that is like, I mean, very much the exact blueprint for Bioshock. Yes. Um, but Cyberpunk. Um, so I, I'd love to. That remake comes out this year of the first one also. Oh, really? Yeah. I just feel like that's, even if I don't fully connect with it, that just feels like a game that if I care about game history, I should play. Yeah. Um, Can it feels I very important. Throw out a, just while I'm thinking about it, can I throw out a gripe real quick? Do you mind if I gripe for a second? Let's gripe. It's time to gripe on ITA 230 FM. I've been seeing a sentiment floating around on the internet that is essentially, it was definitely like a tweet that was going around. Uh, it was to the akin of uh, the highest rated games on Metacritic of the year are Metroid Prime, Dead Space, and Resident Evil 4. And people are like, isn't that sad? Like that these are the best games that are coming out right now. And I, I get, I get the, the trap door that you've fallen into that you think that 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 is a sad revelation. I think that that is by having, by holding that thought and, and giving it light. I think what you're really doing is just throwing out a huge portion of incredible games that you could be really excited about. Like I feel, I feel very strongly that we are in this instance where making games is so accessible to so many people in a way that it never was before. And there are so many incredible things like not getting the limelight that they deserve. I think it's, uh, to me, it's it's less of an indictment of like where the games industry is at and more of an indictment of like where attention is at, because I think you could just shine yes. a brighter light on more cool shit like, I don't know, f- Paranormal Sight, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, for context, Paranormal Sight, I think at this time ha- has like eight player reviews and like two of them are bad so it has like a 60 yeah uh, right. and like you know i mean there's like five dudes on metacritic who are just there to like give everything a one i feel like there's like it's just it's like the tunnel snakes of metacritic they're just like <laughs> there to bring everyone down oh um, that's the episode title let me write but you're, that down yeah <laughs> you're absolutely right i mean i think uh Metacritic is is a great starting point, but it's sort of like saying here are the best movies of the year based on IMDb. I was about right? to say, I mean, yeah, there, there's the similar sentiment, which I don't know, may, maybe maybe I shouldn't say this. But I'll say it anyway. Why not? I, you, you know, the disclaimer for me. But there's there's a sentiment that's going around that's like, oh, man, everything's a cinematic universe. Everything's superhero movies. Like what happened to original ideas in Hollywood? Like there's so many original movies coming out every year that are so fucking great. Yeah. And by being like, oh, there's only superhero movies now. It's like, no, just like take a chance, like go to the movie theater, take a chance on something that you've never heard of. And you will probably have a good time or at least have a fun story to tell your friends, you know? Yeah. I also think this kind of goes hand in hand with like 
you and I are old enough now that I, I see a number of people in my life tiptoeing down the back in my day path. Yes. And I'm like, stop, yes. stop. Yes, we are. Ha- yes. Same wavelength. Yes. yes. This is- it is so easy just to have an interest in something and pay attention. And just because you're not <laughs> following something doesn't mean it stopped being good. Right. The amount... The amount of 30-year-old men that would earnestly say, man, things really went downhill after Banjo-Kazooie yes. and have no idea what the fuck they're talking about. Like, I'm not saying I'm an expert, but like you and I follow games coming out and I would say there is nothing inherently better or worse about this era than in the 90s. I think every era has their own challenges and their own like way, like there are ebbs and flows of like amazing things coming out but i think like we remember the good stuff so of course you know i think it's easy to look back on certain years and be like man they don't make them like they used to and it's like they actually do you just didn't buy it right or you didn't play it, you know <laughs> i had I, I don't know if we ever talked about this on the show but back when i was in a band wow we were meeting with a lot of you know uh, potential managers and labels and things like that and i remember talking to an a and r person at a, a, a major record label that will go unnamed at a certain point and you know, outside of like, hey, do you want to sign us? But it was more just like a normal conversation that I was having with them. And I was like 18 and so curious, like, how do you get that job? Like, how how are you the person who decides what you're signing to this major record label? And they were like, well, I think just the older you get, the more of a tendency you have to stop looking for new stuff. And as long as you hold that idea deep inside yourself, that there is a tendency, the older you get to stop looking for things that might make you uncomfortable, you will fall into only what is comfortable forever. And that like rewired my brain in that moment. That was the moment when I started obsessively making playlists about new music every single year and like seeking out as many new movies as I possibly could. And every like it really changed my whole perspective on life. Just hearing that guy say that. It's not about like trying to like desperately cling on to something. It's about, I mean, I, I think the best art just connects us as people. And I think engaging with the art that is coming out now that speaks to right now whether directly or subconsciously i think does bring us together more effectively i think if you're you know there's nothing wrong with having an affinity we're only human we're gonna have an affinity towards a certain era i mean i'm always gonna love like you know, there's something special about games on Super Nintendo or Game Boy Advance, because I think looking at them alongside games from the present, we can see how the limitation informed the design and sort of what's been gained and lost since then. But I think, you know, to sort of pretend that a older era was inherently better, I think that's actually kind of a dangerous mindset if that extends to other things. I think so, too. Because, you know, you're a wink and a nod away from applying that to, like, culture and, you know, music. And then you're the angry dad at the barbecue in two weeks, you know? Yeah. It's like, I I, I only listen to Sum 41. I wish you would follow new bands and stuff. You can understand. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't know. I've just seen that sentiment a lot recently. Um, ever since Resident Evil 4 started getting good reviews. And I'm like, I don't know, man. Maybe just be happy that Resident Evil 4 is getting good reviews. <laughs> like, it doesn't yeah, need to be I, a doom and gloom scenario. Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I, I understand maybe having, like, a hesitance to to embrace, like, remakes. You know, because I think it's like, we yeah. that goes back to, like, we want new ideas. But again, like, I think the number is, like, 10,000 games are, are shared on Steam every year. 
Right. So like it's it's impossible to engage with all of that. Even games like Paranormal Site are like on the tip of the iceberg. You know, yeah. in terms of like what what is visible, what's being talked about, what's being played. So it's it's really hard to actually gauge what's happening. And in a lot of cases, too, we see games kind of find their audience later on. I mean, I think we kind of saw that in real time with 13 Sentinels, where like that game was kind of an awkward time. It was like one of the last PS4 games, or I guess like at the beginning of the switch to PS5, even though the PS5 games have yet to show up. <laughs> so yeah. in some ways we're still getting PS4 games, but it was sort of like, uh, I think that game found a larger audience later, uh, especially with the switch port coming out. So mm -hmm. I do think there's like a, maybe a more nuanced approach to it, which is like, why do companies like Nintendo feel the need to withhold these older games, as you're saying, you know, instead of preserving these games and allowing people to play the original version of Metroid Prime, it's like, no, we're just going to withhold this from everybody until we release a remake of it. That sucks, I think, to be clear. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm in, I'm in a space where I'm just happy I can play Metroid Prime again legally at all. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, unfortunately, I'm like, I will I will accept the crumbs. The crumbs taste as good as the full cake. <laughs> That's I also true. think... Okay, AJ, cut that out. <laughs> No, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not true. It's not true. The crumbs taste as good as the full cake. I would understand. <laughs> I feel like I'm about um, to fucking volunteer as tribute. It's like so sad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will. I will say as a as a final ribbon tying the section up. I do really you know even though we're we're against the back in my day mindset i am very happy to see the era of gamecube and dreamcast and ps2 kind of re-entering design of mainstream games that's a really experimental era and i think that kind of shows that like there's always going to be room for games like assassin's creed or elden ring there are kind of these like giant you can play this game forever type experiences mm -hmm. but i do think there's a huge appetite for like give me a game that has like a specific idea that respects my time that right. i can see in full yeah. you know and i i, I think games like hi-fi rush and honestly paranormal site i think yeah are are really needed because it's like you can see them and i don't think you need to beat every game to experience it but i think if there's a narrative to enjoy few movies deserve to be over two and a half hours and fewer games deserve to be over 30 hours yeah even just today they announced that the that final fantasy 16 uh the main story takes about like 20 to 30 hours to finish and if you want Perfect. to do the side content that's when you get into the ballooned yeah. like 80 hour experience but if you just want to see the story through it's like actually a pretty, pretty reasonable amount of time. Yeah, I think, again, the only games that pull it off are Persona, but that's a different story. When, when you have a life <laughs> sim, time just arbitrarily melts away. But yeah, uh, I, uh, that's I, games. I'm really, that's games that I'm very excited to talk more about the Dreamcast uh, this summer. So. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, I'm really fucking stoked. I'm like beyond excited to talk about Resident Evil 4. I'm so excited to play that game. Me too. Oh, my God. God, I just like I, I was a little bit on the back. It's honestly, it reminds me so much of how you felt specifically about Resident. <laughs> sorry about Final Fantasy seven remake. Yeah, was yeah. like you were a little bit iffy. We didn't really talk about it on the show that much before it came out. I could tell you were a little bit like hesitant just about even its existence. And then it came out and was great. And we got to talk a lot about it. I felt exactly the same way about Resident Evil four. It's like I played the demo last week. I thought it was pretty good, but I didn't you know, it did. It didn't really rock the boat that much. It didn't really change a whole lot. It just felt a lot like Resident Evil 4 again. Um, and all of the reviews, I would say, have uh, reignited my passion and excitement <laughs> about it. Because uh, apparently the further into that game, the more interesting it gets. And I can't wait to see what that means. Yeah, I, I really love what Capcom has been doing. Yeah. So I'm excited to see how this remake shapes up. 
I love the costumes. Uh, usually yeah. I don't care about that stuff, but I'm like, I might get the deluxe version just to have the like Count of Monte Cristo, yeah. Leon and Ashley. Yeah. yeah. Or the Sum 41 versions of them. <laughs> God, we can't escape. <laughs> I wish you would save me from the chainsaw, man. I will <laughs> understand. Leon, help me. I'm in the trash. And... <laughs> If you do not want to see me again, what are you buying? What are you selling? Ew, that was really <laughs> off key. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's Bye-bye. talk about Paranormal Site. Uh, hey, if you're if you're bouncing from this episode until you play Paranormal Site, thank you for listening. Please like, comment, and subscribe. That's not how this works. But review us on <laughs> Apple Podcasts, maybe. Uh, and uh, you know, into the cast online is our link to everything. But uh, when we come back from the break. We're talking about paranormal site. <laughs> Thank you. Brendan. Steven. And dear listener, last heads up, this is going to be a section about paranormal site yet again, but we're going to go a little bit more into detail. Again, I really strongly urge you to check the game out without hearing this part. But, you know, if you have already played it and want to hear about it or you don't care, uh, here we go. So last chance. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> that was really good. You do a really good Mario and a really good Mickey. And I know the minute you do either, we're going to get sued. Yeah, but um, yeah. <laughs> I saw I saw an interview with Chris Pratt this week where he did like a pitch perfect, actual normal Mario impression. And everyone was so fucking mad. It was like, <laughs> what do you mean? You're withholding this for this interview with James Corden and not doing it for the movie? <laughs> Why, yeah, why did James get the real shit? Yeah. <laughs> um, that's so funny. Anyway, so I'd love to talk a little bit more about the game. I know you're not, you haven't finished it like I have, so I'm not going to spoil your experience. But yeah, I'm about, I would say, six hours in. So I'm like, ju- I don't know, closer to a third of the way through. Yeah, and that's, I think that's like, that's about as far as you should be to listen to this without being spoiled i would say Um, yeah that's like what we're gonna sort of talk about because there's other mechanics of this game that i think are really fascinating so to get a little bit more into the story essentially the game is about this group of people in this in this town hondo i think is it part of tokyo i I Mm -hmm. couldn't quite yeah yeah, it's, it's one of the districts Got it. So it's a district of Tokyo in like the early 80s. And the game kind of has fun exploring that era. I, I, I'm i a little bit over kind of 80s period pieces, but I think the game makes it interesting and pulls it off. And I think also like the game is inherently interested in history and history plays such a big role in the game that yeah. I think like exploring different eras just like works really well for what the game is trying to do and sort of the interest in the Edo period specifically mm-hmm. and like the art of that era and the different like the characters like obsessions with different art and what their interests are and like what's kind of happening culturally in that time and sort of a it's a time at least in the way the game depicts it of like a lot of like youthful rebellion like there's sort Mm -hmm. of this like intense pressure on young people to like get go to a good high school and like get a good job and there's like a resistance to that happening yeah so basically the inciting event is a group of people find cursed objects and each cursed object is inhabited by this vengeful spirit that essentially fills them with the desire to kill and they're told like 
if you kill people with this curse and every curse works differently, which I love. Like that's like, yeah, I, I really want to get into this. Yeah. The reveal of how they work. So ba- the first time that happens, you're playing as this character named Shogo Oki. Wait, we, we should fi- finish that first thought, which is that if you, if you kill enough people with the cursed object, you can bring somebody back to life. So yeah. it, it's this risk reward situation. The whole town and a lot of the characters are interested in the occult in some way. It's like sort of a fad amongst like young people but there's this the rumors of this rite of resurrection where you can bring someone back from the dead but then it's revealed that to do so you have to kill a bunch of people yeah and fill this cursed object with you know the soul that would return to the afterlife but like used as sacrifice to bring someone back yeah and And more specifically you get more if you're able to kill somebody else who also has possession of one of these cursed objects yeah if you kill a random person it will give you like one percent of the souls you need but if you kill a curse bearer it will like be like 30 percent. so they're incentivized almost kind of battle royale-esque like they're incentivized to find the other curse bearers so one of the most gripping parts of the game is in the prologue when shogooki gets his cursed object and then you meet a stranger who asks for it and it's like Mm -hmm. that was maybe the most i was on the edge of my seat sweating like the whole time yeah yeah yeah. uh and it's the the mind games the game plays and what's really fascinating is so all the curses work differently and Shogo's is especially powerful, which the game kind of comments on uh, indirectly. Mm-hmm. But Shogo's curse is essentially if a person walks away from him. Right. He can kill them by drowning. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. If you if you engage them in conversation and they decide to turn around at any point or like leave the conversation, then that that is the prerequisite for him to kill them. And the game actually gives the player the ability to use the curse or not. So like during conversations, you'll hear you'll hear like a breath and see like use curse in the top left. And they're really I almost wish they did that more now that I've beat it. Like they they actually don't use it as often as you think they would. Mm. But when they do, it's so tense and the game has fun. You know, there are situations where you absolutely don't want to use it. But maybe the character does. And there's also moments where you absolutely want to use it. Like, I definitely want to kill this person. Mm-hmm. But like, I'm going to resist the urge to like the detective. He gets a cursed object that can kill people if they're lying to him, which adds so much dramatic irony to like in situations because he's one of the playable characters. If you're not playing as him, you're like, I know he knows who's lying in the scene and I'm yes. sweating. Right. It's so good. It's so good. And there's almost a little bit of like like a shonen villain energy to when people explain what their curse power is. Mm-hmm. And like some of them are like really specific and some of them are like really scary and like the like they're not made evenly. Like yeah. that that one that kills you if you walk away is like maybe one of the most powerful ones and just the ease of activating it. Like cuz some are like Yeah. some require like oh this will kill them if you can hear it but they can't see you. So like yeah, you're limited to using that like in the shadows, basically. Mm-hmm. I, I I think one of the brilliant things about it, though, especially starting with the prologue with Shogo as, as your protagonist that you start playing as giving you that power where if the person turns around and tries to walk away, you can kill them leads to a completely different version of 
like text-based dialogue choices than I've ever seen in a video game where what you're trying to do is not engage this person in conversation and keep them around. You specifically want to almost like enrage them or piss them off or like do something that will get them to turn around and leave so you can then use your curse on them, Um, which is so funny to think about. It's like I feel like in, in most visual novels or most like dialogue choices, you're just trying to extract more information. You know, think about Ace Attorney, for example. And in this case, it's like I'm doing everything I possibly can to be as fucking terrible as possible. <laughs> So this person will turn around and walk away from me. It's really fascinating too, just to see the multiple angles of like, there are characters that like most of them are, are fairly normal and likable characters, but you can see how their personalities change the minute they're given this power to kill with leaving no evidence. Like, yeah, it does change them. And everyone has like a different philosophy about that. Everyone has someone else they want to bring back from the dead. The game even begins with the, with the storyteller who's this this masked figure asking the player like if you could do this you know Mm -hmm. what like like if you had the power to bring someone back like would you use it and Mm -hmm. there are multiple options without getting too into it too the game does have some meta elements where there's a interest in the separation between the player and the protagonist yeah so there are often times like especially once you get the ability to go from chapter to chapter in this story flow chart there are moments where you actually have to do the detective work on like a bird's eye view of like okay this character their story actually came to a halt. I need to do this as another character to get them in the same place. Mm-hmm. Um, so like you actually have the power to sort of manipulate the events and the characters will sometimes comment on like, wait a minute, why do I know this? Like, how did I get this information? Right. And and the storyteller, you know, there are moments where you can fail and the character dies and the storyteller will kind of give you cryptic advice. Like, you know, keep in mind, like this character won't put the pieces together. You have to do that. Yeah. Like they're not going to know to do this, but like you might, might now that you have this information mm-hmm. and they have a lot of fun with that and there are some really fun moments they do it just enough i was a little bit worried how far that was gonna go i think it's a nice cherry on top it's not like fully gonna pull the rug under you so yeah. if, if you were like a little bit cautious about that i think it's done pretty tastefully and often enough that like i know that it's it's if i am ever stuck it's sometimes helpful to think outside the box um, and there are some really really fun moments where like you you're asked to do something and then the minute you realize what the game wants you to do it's like oh of course like that that's so cool that they thought to do this yeah um there's a moment it, that you mentioned to me that i, I don't want to spoil the, the solution for but it's like one of the last people i think you talked to as shogo in, the, in that first prologue bit felt like an absolute fucking genius when, yeah. I, when, I, when I figure that one out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. And, and overall, like the game does a good job making like the player feel empowered by the connections you're making. Cause again, I think like that's the challenge of these types of games is like, you don't want to feel completely stumped that you can't progress, but you also don't want to be given the answer explicitly. Yeah. Um, there was only one time where I had to look at a guide and uh, it was towards the end. And I was just like completely like, I'm like, this is maybe the only time where I could have used a more direct, clue because mm-hmm. when i when i looked at a guide I, I i'm like i don't know if i would have put this together actually interesting and this is at the very end and i'm like that's maybe a bummer but <laughs> that could just it also probably was because it was three in the morning and i was like half yeah, maybe. awake yeah but yeah i i think this game is incredible i uh, i was really happy and uh pleased with the with the finale i do part of me i think enjoyed the game the most when i when i had not all the information. Mm. Um, that's not really 
a a uh, downside to the game. And I think that's sort of a that's sort of just tied to the genre. I think it's the most fun when you like have enough info that you kind of are piecing together what's going on, but there are some things left in the dark. Right. The game does pretty clearly tie everything up, which I appreciate. But I almost wish there was a little bit more open to interpretation mm. um that's like my one kind of point of feedback but i mean i obviously enjoyed it because i couldn't stop playing it so yeah i think i think you might be listening to this and have already played it which makes a lot of sense but if you if you haven't played it yet uh what i'll say is i, I think the first opening bit the prologue uh which i would say is probably like maybe two or three hours total yeah somewhere in that vicinity is just exhilarating i think it's like some of the best like upfront let's just like put everything that's cool about this game in one spot uh, kind of situation. The the thing that really stands out to me specifically is, you know, Shogo's curse, you know how to use it, but you don't know the, the activation prerequisites for all of the other curse bearers curses. So you're very frequently in conversation with other people and you don't even know for sure if they are curse bearers. And also if they are, you don't know what the prerequisites are. So you're like walking on eggshells with everything that you say or do it could be as simple as like if you turn to the left in conversation with somebody maybe that'll kill you that's it's not one of them i'm just making that up but like maybe if you turn to the left for example like that person will kill you because yours is so simple that if somebody turns and walks away from you then they die so like okay what what are the possible prerequisites for somebody else's curse uh and and that list is like really endless there's really no way of knowing um and it creates these unbelievably tense moments i'm thinking specifically of uh the conversation you have with a guy on, on a bridge he, he is the, yeah. the, pri- the, the private <laughs> investigator you, you go meet him on the bridge because you're you're essentially in this space where it's like okay shogo has been given this curse thing and he's making his way around seeing if he can find the other seven uh seven mysteries of hojo um and he's just going to the locations where those mysteries are and keeps running into people there who are probably also curse bearers realistically also doing the same thing he's doing and you run into this guy on this bridge and i was like convinced that he was a curse bearer right i mean like obviously he is In, in what world is he not a curse bearer and he's so weird and so interesting as a dude that like clearly he's going to kill me at the first opportunity. And then he doesn't, you know, you just, you end up just leaving. You don't, there's like no story progression that happens there really at all. You just kind of make your way elsewhere. But that whole conversation, I was sure I was going to die at any moment. And then realizing at the end, you know, that I could just go somewhere else. I didn't realize I was holding my breath for like actually 10 minutes, (laughs) you know, throughout the whole conversation. I honestly think like I've seen, like I was looking at some reviews for this game. Cause I'm just like, I I'm so in love with it. I want to see like what the, what the overall consensus is. And right. I've seen some people say that the paralogue or the prologue is the best part of it. And I, I kind of understand, like I, I enjoyed the whole thing, but I do think that there is a like death note level of suspense mm-hmm. to the prologue that is not quite the same in the other chapters. Yeah. Um, right. But I think that kind of adds to the variety. I think you can't keep that up for a whole game, mm-hmm. you know, but I do think that like in some ways that opening two hours is its own game in addition yeah. to everything else. I do think death note is a really good analog because it really does feel like the light Yagami and L situation, oh, yeah, right? Where absolutely. it's like, you know, L, L hasn't quite figured out how light is killing people and light obviously you know needs to be very discreet about the death note itself you know lest he loses his access to it 
and and creates this really fun cat and mouse thing and it kind of puts what i what i love about this game is it puts you on even footing with the people that you're after you know where neither of you really know the prerequisite for somebody else i I just think it's fucking brilliant i think it's so fun yeah um and the other thing that reminds me of weirdly and this is like a real deep cut i mean maybe maybe not but I, i think it's sold pretty well but there's a there's a manga that's running maybe it's done already at this point i I don't know if it's continuing in shonen jump called super smartphone which is this i i love the first few chapters of it um but it's essentially about this kid who gets access to a smartphone that has like a super hyper advanced ai built into it and there are a couple of them in the world and the idea of the super smartphone is you need to seek out and like reveal the identities of the other people with these smartphones but because it's like this hyper advanced ai you can use it to kind of do whatever you want so some you know this kid is essentially using it like a private eye like trying to seek out these other smartphone users and the other ones who have access to it are like completely uninterested in finding the identities of the other people they're just using it for like machiavellian purposes so like there's one guy in particular who early on in in the arc is using it to essentially like sow civil unrest in japan by uh like faking hiring all of these people to like cut the power in a big office building and like you know rob banks and stuff like that and i i don't think that story really really holds water for that long unfortunately like the 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 suspense of like who has these smartphones and whatever kind of starts to wash away the further you get into it which i think is one of the brilliant things about this game that you have that first chapter of that exact kind of motif and then you have this varying degree of different kinds of stories that you're telling and different kinds of gameplay applications for the things that you've already learned how to do via that prologue right like you have the detective story which is a very specific thing but then you also have uh the the like schoolgirl story which is a completely different method of playing the game and that's more just like straight visual novel um, yeah which is i think i think really brilliant especially for a game that's like 15 hours long ish you know, having having three protagonists that are each like little five hour games um, that all tie together at the end. Great. Why not? That's awesome. Yeah. I, it, it was also really fun to see like eventually when the characters start interacting more and like, you know, what the relationships are and, you know, learning to again about like because there are other characters who have cursed objects that aren't playable and like then seeing the eerie kind of parallels between the myths, you know, or these folk tales and like the people who have those curses in the places they are. And Mm -hmm. there's, there's eventually too one of the focal points of the plot is sort of like recent murders that kind of predate this like ritual that brought all these cursed objects to light and how that connects to everything. And and all of that is, is really cool. Yeah. Uh, There are some kind of uh, soap opera E revelations where I'm like, this is so over the top. It's almost kind of comedic, (laughs) but overall it all really worked for me. And I, I do think the game kind of, of finds a surprisingly like heartfelt message by the end I, oh, I do nice. think it kind of veers more again like it's it starts as this death note horror and then i think kind of veers to a thriller mystery and then kind of becomes like a drama by the end which is interesting to i think it's sort of like how re4 starts as night of the living dead and becomes you know uh michael bay um, yeah i think this is like kind of a nice soft landing of genre in some ways that's awesome yeah oh, it's, i'm so excited to keep playing it yeah it's, it's i mean if you can't tell it's one of my favorite games in recent memory i think there is no chance it won't come up again during goatee and i would love to talk to you about it like spoiler like full story eventually whether that's for a bonus on the patreon or something yeah i, I think we need to do that at some point in some capacity 
Yeah. Yeah. Let us know if you want that, dear listener. Uh, yeah. But uh, I, I, I imagine I'll probably finish the game this week or next week if I was to guess. Yeah. There's there's a certain point where it's like you can't put it down. Uh, yeah. I think you, you took a nice break. Like doing the prologue, I think, is a nice like, OK, like I'll I get a sense of who these other protagonists are. I'm going to take another break here. Yes. Um, But once you start kind of getting into those stories, it's hard to not want to see it through all the way. Yeah, I've done uh, I've done the prologue and then the first chapter of each of the three nice characters. And then I'm, I'm going to continue on, I think, with uh, with one of them. I don't know who yet. Yeah, they're all they're all really good. And again, I like that they explore different things. I think uh, Haru, uh, who's this mother who lost her son and she's kind of desperate to bring him back, but also clearly is like kind of so full of grief. She wants just to get revenge on people. Right. And like is is one of the curse bearers that is like most cool with having to kill people. Yeah. And the private investigator and their relationship is really great because he is sort of like the angel on her shoulder being like, you don't have to do this. Like there, right. I'm going to help you find the people who hurt or who took your son from you. But like, we're not going to resort to this. And mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. a really thrilling and like surprisingly heartfelt relationship um, yeah. that, that I really enjoyed seeing. So that, that story feels like it's the most interested in sort of like the mindset of a curse bearer and the sort of like psychological and emotional state. And then you have sort of the murder mystery, like uh, detective banter, that I really enjoy because those characters are awesome. And then you have sort of the more tied to the horrific events uh, with Yako and um, yeah, her story is awesome and they're all they're all really good but yeah. i will also say i mean this this is uh I, I guess unrelated but semi-related but just one of the things that just popped into my head that i really love about this game is the idea of looking through the lens of like conspiracy theory and tall tales and getting really to the heart of their origins and why they've been passed down you know like a, a lot of the seven mysteries of hojo are literally just the origins of like everyday phrases and sayings that people say which i think is really interesting like also each of them relates to how the curses are activated so I, I, I don't mind saying this one at least but like the one the one that Shogo gets at the, at the beginning of the game um, the reason why you can kill people when they turn around is it's based on a, a girl in the Edo period who like drowned in a in a lake um, and everyone kind of like turned away from her while she was drowning um, and she felt abandoned and that's why she became like a, a you know essentially a, a, a mean spirited ghost um, yeah and, and became this cursed object. But once that that's a little bit of where a lot of the investigation comes in, right? When you're trying to figure out, you know, how the other curse bearers can activate their curses, you need to go and read up literally in the files what their curse is based on uh, and and try and extrapolate from there how you're able to subvert their their uh, prerequisites. Yeah, there, there's a very like surprisingly empathetic core to the game. I think un- yeah. unraveling the mysteries and also like undoing the curses kind of revolves around understanding what has happened and kind of reckoning with that trauma. Mm-hmm. I think Haru getting over the death of her son is actually a great microcosm of like all these vengeful spirits. Like she is sort of like a vengeful spirit waiting to happen. Yes. And, and seeing totally. the private investigator kind of like remind her that there are like simple pleasures in life is, is, a, is a really beautiful story that isn't too on the nose. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you kind of see it happening and you're like, is there something going on between these two? I kind of like this. Yeah. Um, but it's sort of more up to your own perception um Mm. 
and he he's just he steals the show i mean in, <laughs> in an incredible cast i could never get enough of him like the game does a great job you know having a variety of camera angles there are great shots where it'll be like the profile of someone's face and kind of like ace attorney there are sort of like specific facial expressions or poses you see a lot but then every now and then you get the like really angry one yako has a great one that only happens once or twice where she goes like full nenji ogata and is like ready to fight and it's so cool like whenever that happens <laughs> i'm like yes so yeah it's it's a uh, it's incredible i i love it and i think you know i'm, I'm still kind of digesting it i i wonder if it's something that i would play again because i do think knowing the full story i would love to revisit moments and see like how much is really foreshadowed i imagine a lot you know yeah but yeah it's it's an incredible experience and i'm really interested in learning more about games that are in this genre you know like maybe now with this experience going back to zero escape or other games like that you know i was gonna say uh I, f- I feel like i was cruel to those games at the at the top of the episode but i do i do want to go give them all a second shot and i think very frequent i feel like that's a thing that happens to us all the time on this show is we'll like find a really wonderful entry point into a genre or an idea or a or a, or a subsect of games that we then can revisit and have a better relationship with and i i could see that happening with this as well yeah and that goes back to what i brought up originally where it's like we we missed so much of this genre's history it's cool that we're getting it now and kind of catching up yeah that's paranormal site uh is fucking good (laughs) it's really good i uh i really really encourage people to check it out i think it's a wonderful experience yeah graphics sound gameplay (laughs) fun factor anyway why don't we wrap up yeah let's do it Hey, you know the drill into the cast that online is our hub for everything. If you like the show, the best way to help it grow is to share it with a friend. Uh, you can also review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you want to support the show on Patreon. Uh, you can you- comment on Spotify now. We have a comment section. Really? <laughs> they added comments to episodes on Spotify. For you can <laughs> listen, comment, and subscribe on Spotify. <laughs> um if you do it maybe it helps i have no idea maybe it helps us maybe, hey comment on an episode and see what happens we recently have gotten a, a few really nice reviews so thank you for everyone who's been doing that um yeah you know that it does really help the show i think we're kind of experiencing like a pretty notable like wave of new listeners in this part of the year and yeah. and uh it's really exciting and we're trying to do like i think we've got a really good rhythm for the show but i think we're also always looking for ways to like push ourselves and explore more things grow you know alongside the show grow growing and, and grow like as people making it and what we're doing. So as always, share any and all feedback you want about like what you'd like us to cover or see us doing. Maybe in the comments of the episode on <laughs> Spotify.io. Let it go. <laughs> <laughs> we do have some cool stuff in the works. Some 41 Spotify comments, some 41 Spotify comments. It's all I hear about. <laughs> it's your curse. If you get me to complain about some 41, I explode. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, for real, we do have some cool stuff in the works though, that I'm excited yeah. to eventually talk about when we can talk about it. A little bit of explaining because I saw some confusion about this and I imagine for a new listener it might be a little weird. So when we say bonus episode, that is essentially what the show is for everyone, regardless of whether you're a patron or not. Weekly episodes and a monthly bonus episode that's usually about one game or idea. So the bonus episodes for everybody this month will be Super Mario All-Stars and next month will be the Metroid Prime remake. Yo, Mario 3 is so hard. (laughs) You said that? Why is that game so hard? You said that to me and I did didn't really fully agree and then i played the level where the sun chases you yes like, yeah yeah it's really difficult having um, look i in public 
played and finished. You you could see the, the visual video proof that I played and finished Super Mario 2, The Lost Levels. And I'm having a much harder time with Mario 3 so, for some reason. <laughs> it's also kind of a slippery game. It's, it's slippery. It, That's yeah. it. Yes. It's, uh, there's an eternal debate of whether or not Mario 3 or Super Mario World are the best 2d mario mm. and i i love both but i have to say going to super mario world has like reaffirmed that being my favorite like yeah. I, I just that game that feels game is, perfect yeah it really does yeah. mario 3 is incredible and i think like we'll talk more about each entry on that episode so anyway bonus when we say bonuses that's for everyone <laughs> right sorry and and we'll specify patron bonuses and that's stuff that's for patrons and usually we try to you know every now and then like i think the 3ds episode is kind of an exception yeah because that is something we would maybe normally do for the main feed but that was sort of like a stretch goal for us to do that in addition to the ds episode but you Usually the Patreon is like an extension of the show and not like paywalled content. That's yeah. our goal, at least. Like, you know, we, we want to make sure that like everyone who listens is getting the full show and the stuff on Patreon is like, if you want more, you know, that might be like spoiler discussions for games we've already brought to the show. Maybe like more specific conversations about certain things. Maybe more full video playthroughs of video games. Full video Maybe. playthroughs. Uh, also, like, I would love to do another uh, movie commentary. We have a, like, watch along for uh, Advent Children that was so fun to make. We should do that again for you something. Want to do Forrest Gump? <laughs> Steven left. It's just me now. This is a solo show. I'm getting a really good look, actually, at Steven's gamer chair now which i i had never really seen before because you know he's told he told me that he got one but he's been sitting in it so i could only see in the background just kind of like the gray you know the, the gray top of it but it's got a big t on it which i'm really interested in i wonder what that stands for uh oh steven's back now so i can't see it anymore i was just commenting that this is the first time i got a really good look at your gamer chair oh <laughs> because last week when he told me you got it you were sitting in it, so I just knew you had one, but I couldn't really see it. But it, what do you think? It looks really nice. I like the uh, the tricolor blend of the gray. I think that looks yeah. really nice. It's a texture. It's called cookies and cream, but it's a textured gray. It's also I think it's nice. kind of like my cicada shell. So whenever I just get up, I leave this behind. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, thank you for listening. I do want to I do want to mention one thing before we wrap up. It, just in terms of making the the blurry line between patron and normal bonus episode even uh less clear as of the time that this episode comes out we've also released the beginning of the 3ds episode in the public feed yeah um which just to be clear that's that's a th i mean if you listen to it already you've heard the explanation of that but that's like a total outlier thing that's more of just like a, we thought that that content was good enough that everyone should hear it uh but if you want to hear the rest of it obviously you can go uh, and and, and uh, back the patreon and hear like the actual discussion about all the games but we thought that that discussion about just the 3ds the history of the 3ds our relationship with the 3ds was like honestly good enough to just like be in the main feed for everybody uh, and just kind of wanted to share that widely before the 3ds eShop closes down yeah exactly and and again that episode is the the swan song of the dollar tier so if you back the patreon for a dollar you'll get that episode and everything that came before yeah and going forward the episodes will be five dollars and uh, we have some fun plans for that so stay tuned we'll keep you posted yeah like forrest gump <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're gonna have to do it unfortunately <laughs> no i sometimes you have to draw a line in the sand and that's one of them <laughs> okay people are already trying to manifest spirits within and i feel like that probably will happen at one point oh uh, yeah yeah maybe maybe we should stop doing this 
My name is Brandon Bigley. You can find me on the internet at Brandon Bigley. I'm Stephen Hilger. My cursed object is basically uh, asking me to watch Spirits Within, and if I watch it, uh, I can kill anyone who has told me to watch that movie. <laughs> My cursed object is a Blu-ray of Forrest Gump. <laughs> And that's it. The no prerequisite. It just it just is Forrest Gump. I will I will say shout out to a friend of the show, Dom Nero, who convinced me to purchase a Blu-ray of uh, the Ridley Scott film starring Tom Cruise and Mia Sara and Tim Curry, Legend, uh, which he pitched to me as the only Legend of Zelda movie that exists <laughs> in real life. Uh, and I watched it, and I don't think it is that, but it is very interesting. And I purchased a Blu-ray. We'll talk about Legend one day, I'm sure. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Thank you for listening. Also listen to Eye of the Duck. It's a great movie podcast with our friends Dom and Adam. Bye-bye. We're picking a great time to stop recording because the kids outside have entered Screaming Sunday mode. (laughs) Have a good week, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Garbage. The online.